This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in. Late kick on the air yet again. It is Sunday night. It is July 19th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We have got, what else would we have? A jam-packed show again tonight. And like Colin and I were talking before the show, yeah, there are some things that most people are talking about today and yesterday and day before. We're going to go a little different route tonight. I have had some things that I wanted to hit, and this Sunday night show, that's where we're going to hit them at. So how about this road? How about in a couple of minutes, we're going to start by going down the Gary Danielson Road. Yeah, we're going to go down that one. We're also going to go down the most overachieving programs in America. Nothing but positivity here tonight. We talk underachievers all the time. How about some overachievers? I'm going to go some places you think I'll go. Maybe at least one place that not only do I know you don't think I'll go, but I will get criticism for it because I've said this before about this program, and you disagreed with me then, but I stand on the merit behind my argument. Also, as I told you Thursday night, we're going to dive a little bit deeper. Bud Elliott and I were doing the Barton and Bud show. And no, my name's not Barton, but Barton just had another baby girl. So congratulations to him. Very delayed. It's been over a week now. Very delayed there. Congratulations to him. I was filling in, though, for him on his podcast with Bud Elliott. And we weren't planning on talking about Justin Fields and Jake Fromm. And way back when, three years ago now, Kirby Smart goes with Fromm, Fields, exits stage right, goes to Columbus, Ohio, you know the rest. But we did go down that road, which led me to want to talk about it more, and I've seen some of the feedback from that episode, and so I want to address that tonight. I just want to revisit it, and there's some revisionist history that I want to dispel, because I want to take, especially some of my Georgia buddies, I want to take you back to what we were all saying not necessarily we, let me scratch that, what some people were saying at the time. So all that, as well as somebody trying to rain again on the hype train that is attempting to pull out of the station in Knoxville, Tennessee. So we've got a lot to get to, but we're going to lead it off tonight with uh, not a young man, but a man who is nothing if not controversial. I personally don't understand the controversy, but yet I do understand the controversy. So I'm doing the Late Kick Extra podcast the other day, and there it is right there. Colin, I was telling you before the show, there it is. In the inbox, we have got several people. David, I just picked David's question out, but quite a few people over the span of the couple of months we've done that podcast have asked, hey, uh, what you think about Gary Danielson? Hey, do you like Gary Danielson? David asked, Why is it that everyone seems to be in unison in the SEC? Everyone hates each other, but yet there's one thing they agree on. No one seems to like Gary Danielson. Okay, well, let's go down this road. Gary Danielson, if you don't know, is the one on the right there. He is the analyst, the lead analyst for the CBS Game of the Week on SEC, has been for a while. So everyone doesn't dislike Gary Danielson, just a majority of people who you hear from. 
dislike him. Because I've spoken to people before about what they think about him, and I've had several people say, oh, he's fine, or oh, I even like him. But those people aren't the ones who tend to run to a message board or a talk show or the YouTube chat and dispel their pleasure. Normally, you only really start speaking out about an analyst or a broadcaster when you don't like them. So by default, all the opinions you hear about Gary Danielson, most of them are negative. So let's go down the list. You can add on as you see fit. This is the list that I have aggregated about different reasons that people dislike Gary Danielson. Uh, every, well, everyone I hear from thinks that he is biased towards or against something that you care about. He has arrogance. I'm going to address all these individually. The third is, oh, he messes up names sometimes. And the fourth one is, he makes too many obvious statements. All right. Let's, I've heard all these, so let's go down this list. The bias is the one I want to address first. This one's the easiest to dispel. He doesn't care. And I know it because I don't really care either. I'm extremely passionate about the sport, don't get me wrong. But where I can identify with what people say about Gary Danielson on this front is, is, Colin, you know this, I've told you this before, we, doing this show, just in the short amount of time we've been at 24-7, we have been accused by some people of being both homers and haters simultaneously of like a dozen programs. We, by the end of this show tonight, we will be called Tennessee homers or Tennessee haters or Georgia homers and haters. Like whoever we talk about on the show, people find a way to hear whatever they want to hear. The way that I know that guys like Gary Danielson don't really care either way is because what they really want is they want a paycheck. That's the first thing they want. Secondly, they have the platform to be able to share with you whatever it is they think. But really, thirdly, once you get to that level, you understand it's a lot more about keeping as many people invested as possible. You don't want to alienate anyone. The last thing in the world you would do, even if you did hate a program, the last thing in the world you would do is espouse those viewpoints on live TV. That's not what's happening. And for everybody who, let's just pick a program, let's pick Auburn, for everyone who would claim, oh, this man hates Auburn, I could go and weave my way through a broadcast and get 15 examples of that broadcaster speaking glowingly about Auburn. So, and here's the other thing that I've experienced before. It used, to, it used to happen in talk radio all the time. It's where, you, it's where you realize there is really no winning with some people. You'd make a statement that was not negative. It was just not glowing. Like if I didn't think a team was going to win a game, I would pick the team to lose the game, right? And then you would take calls and you would be accused of being a hater because there's no way you just don't think they're going to win the game. If you pick against them, it's got to be because you're a hater. But then a funny thing happens. The team loses the game. So you end up being right. Like There's no other way you could have framed it if you wanted to be right than saying that they were going to lose the game. Your piece came out. So they end up losing the game, and then you hear from the same fans the next week, and they still maintain your hater status. So what do you really do there? So let's move to the second part, the arrogance. The arrogance is, to me, someone who just really doesn't mind how you feel about what they say. The authenticity is what I care about. We spoke about this like a month ago, uh, and we were talking about Urban Meyer. Actually, it was like last week. It wasn't a month. But with Urban Meyer, I told you the reason that I thought he was doing so phenomenally in this line of work was because he was being his authentic self. Whatever was in his head, in his heart, was coming out of his mouth. He did not walk into a studio and pretend to be one of the TV guys. 
He is a college football coach who just so happens to be sitting at a broadcast booth or at a studio desk. So with Gary Danielson, for example, when I listened to him, I changed my mentality. This is what I was talking to Colin about before the show. I told him I changed my mentality on this like a decade ago. I used to just want a guy in the booth who said everything I agreed with. But then I realized I could go and listen to the home radio broadcast if I wanted that. On a national broadcast, I don't have to agree with everything you say. I just want to make sure that I know what you're saying you truly believe. You're truly being authentic. I could be pulling for Arkansas, and you could tell me that you think they'll struggle to hang within three touchdowns today. But if you give me tangible, logic-based reasons behind why you think what you think, even if I disagree with you, one of us is going to be right, one of us is going to be wrong, at least I know you're being authentic, and you have an informed viewpoint. Because if you are a guy like Danielson, you actually played the game. You played in the NFL, you played in college, so you actually played the game. So I don't mind that either. I've just I've changed my philosophy on that over the course of 10 years. I used to say all these things is the reason this is so, I, I can identify with this so much. Now the names, this is the one I really wanted to hit. So in any broadcast, rarely, let me say, rarely are you going to execute a perfect broadcast where you pronounce every name the right way, every number, everything's right. Every hometown's pronounced the right way, especially in the South. So a lot of people who poke fun at formerly Vern Lundquist and currently Gary Danielson, they used to work together on the CBS SEC game of the week, was, I mean, you know, there was a middle linebacker for Alabama named Orlando McCain, apparently. Now, in real life, you and I both know that's Rolando McClain. So that was a name that was commonly butchered. And there have been several. It's almost become a drinking game for those of you who take part in such activities as to which name is going to be butchered. This has never bothered me. Uh, this to me is not indicative at all of how well you understand the game. To me, it's indicative of being in a broadcast booth. Now, I have an unfair advantage here because I've been in them. Uh, this past year, I, through thankfully some connections, was able to be I don't want to tell you the game. I was at a national game. So I was sitting in the broadcast booth at a national game. Year before, same thing. Same broadcast team uh, for one of the major networks. And I was sitting in the broadcast booth. I just wish people could experience that. I wish people could experience having one of these things. It's called an IFB, this earpiece, if you're listening on the podcast. Not having one of these and you're actually having a full headset on. And you have two different feeds coming, depending on which ear you're looking at. One's coming from a production truck. One is coming from your spotter. And they're talking. It's not like they shut up while the play's going on. It's just like doing local news. I did that for a long time. I anchored news for a long time. You got a producer that's in your ear. It is a flow. It is a conversation. You hear all the production cues being called. Sot, roll, three, two, one, take. Tag on camera four. All that stuff's happening in your ear. I don't care how experienced you are. You never really fully get used to that. In a football game, you got a roster in front of you of like 150 to 200 names that you're not all that familiar with like a fan is and you got to memorize a new one each week and you've got a you got a spotter in your ear you got a production truck in your ear it's a lot of times very chaotic you're hearing the replay calls real time from the truck they're letting you know what they're queuing up all that's happening in your ear as you're on national tv trying to talk through things and it's not pre-recorded there's no dry run. You don't get to go back and say, all right, Colin, at the end of this show, I want to clip this, 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 and this. It's live, baby. You just got to let it roll. And so you're going to mispronounce names every now and then. 
I, I swear to you, if I put you guys through that, you would mispronounce your mom's name every now and then. It's not that you don't know the roster. It's not that you don't know the names. It's just the human mind is not really built to function in that kind of environment. Over the span of four hours, you gotta be sharp for four hours. So, uh, and he has not hired me as his agent this week. I mean, I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to uh, entertain the offer, but he has not hired me. But the final one is the obvious statement one. And this, again, is something I was talking to Colin about. So I was talking to a producer, someone who works in production, for a network last year. They kind of validated what I already knew. You may watch a broadcast, and you may say, well, that was the most obvious point in the world. Like, he points out something that you learned in peewee football. And so you think, oh, he thinks he's a genius because he just pointed that out. That's the most obvious thing in the world. Everyone knows that. So I brought that argument up to Mr. Producer. And here's what Mr. Producer told me. Yeah, uh, if you sat in our production meetings, you'd know why. Because our producers hammer it into them that they are broadcasting to the casual fan. This is not a coaching clinic. You're not doing chalk talk sessions where you're breaking down the intricacies of zone blocking. You're not talking to that person. That's the fringe minority. People who have that much of an understanding of the game, they are the rarity. You're trying to reach the mass public. And so there are some concepts, very basic, of football that you have to explain over and over and over again. Perfect example. If you see a receiver go up for a, a fade route, and they drag one toe. If I'm Gary Danielson, you know what I gotta say? Even though I've said it a million times and I know a bunch of you already know it, here's what I gotta say. I gotta say, now remember, in the college game, you only have to have one foot in bounds. If you look at this replay, if this were the NFL, that wouldn't be a touchdown. But when they come back, they're gonna overturn this because this is a touchdown because he's got one foot in. Now you may say, okay, dude, you just made the point over and over again and everyone already knows that. No. Everyone doesn't know that. You and I know it. But your grandma may be sitting there watching the game, and she may not know it. Your niece may be watching the game. Your cousin, who is a gamer and rarely ever watches sports, may be watching the game. They don't know that. That's who they're broadcasting towards. And really, when you think it through like that, it all makes sense. So I just wanted to give you some point-counterpoint. I always hear these arguments about guys like Danielson. He's not the only one, but... He's the one that David asked about. So those are just some counterpoints, and I'm sure the comment section will fill up. But be nice. Be nice because, I mean, listen, he's got family just like everyone else, so let's be civil here. How about the most overachieving programs in America? Had a really good question the other night, uh, second in a row actually, from the Late Kick inbox as we were putting together the Late Kick Extra podcast that is released on Wednesday, and it's there for the whole week if you want to listen to it. And... Uh, Cat Train asked a question that I don't think we've been asked this entire offseason. We've been asked about underachieving programs a whole lot. But Cat Train said, very simply, three words, most overachieving programs in America. So that's five. And how do you, how do you gauge this? Because you can think this through with me because I know everyone has their own criteria. How do you gauge it? I'll tell you how I gauge it. Overachieving programs, I just want to know about your results compared to your resources. And to me, there's nowhere else to start but Duke and what Dave Cutcliffe has done at Duke. I want you to think about something. I had to look this up to make sure. Since 2013, in what world did you ever think you'd hear this stat? Since 2013, Duke has more seasons of seven plus wins than the University of Texas. Yeah, 
Texas. And so I don't care what world we're living in. I don't care who the coaches have been at Texas. I don't care if they've been under sanctions and had a cannonball tied around their ankle and been tossed to the bottom of the Gulf. That is pretty darn impressive. So Dave Cutcliffe, not only has he made Duke football more than respectable, he has universal respect from every coach in America. Every coach that you talk to, it's, it's that guy. It's Dave Cutcliffe. And when they coach against him, it's always, they may have a superior roster, so they win the game, but at the postgame presser, they're so ashamed because they know we just beat them 38 to 21, but he really outcoached us. And they don't want to say that because that's terrible, but they know it. They know it in the following day's film session. They know it. Dave Cutcliffe's done a phenomenal job, and believe you me, he could have been on uh, the next thing smoking out of town several times very recently, and he's chosen to stay there. Some people are just happy. How about Boise State? This has been a several coach endeavor too. You tell me what advantage you have in Boise. Sometimes programs exceed expectation or they fly well above the pack because they just have more resources relative to their competition. Boise is the opposite. And when Peterson really started that role out there, they were the opposite. They were competing against teams like Fresno State, for example. Fresno is in California. Boise's in the middle of Idaho. You should be at a disadvantage. Not only is it a level playing field, you should be at a disadvantage at Boise State. If you're trying to convince a kid to leave California and come to Idaho versus teams in California saying, hey, just stay home. Like, what do you think is going to win there more times than not? So you had to be going above and beyond, above and beyond, above and beyond, and you had to have such a culture in place that it overcame all that, and they built it, and now they've sustained it, and every year. This is, they are a version of a contender. They may be a more serious contender some years than not, but there's no logical way to explain what they've been able to do unless you get down into the more granular level and you just understand that's why all these coaches use the word culture. That's why every business uses the word culture. And it sounds so cliched and you think, oh, this is just a talking point. No, it's not. Because when you have it, and most places don't have it, but when you find the rarity, the exception, where they do have culture, you know, they got it at North Dakota State, for example. We could easily include them here. They got it at Boise. They got it at Boise State. This is what happens. It almost gets to the point where from the outside, you look at it and say, that seems like it'd be hard to screw up. No, they're just making it look that easy. Next up, Iowa State. Let's go to the Big 12. Iowa State, I've developed this fascination with Iowa State. Seven and six, that was their record last year. And do you know what people called it? People had the audacity to either whisper it or outright say that that was a down year because people expected a little bit more. I'd be lying if I said I didn't expect a little bit more, but I'm certainly never going to call seven and six a down year at Iowa State. They have. Matt Campbell has done a great job at this. They've established a well-defined brand, well-defined identity. You know, the other night we were talking about the mood tracker for the ACC. And I said for Virginia Tech, everyone there wants to know the same thing. What is our identity? Like, how do people identify us coast to coast? They don't have that problem at Iowa State. Everyone knows what they're about. Before Matt Campbell got there, just to contextualize that quote-unquote seven and six down year, before he got there, their last season of eight-plus wins had been the year 2000. It's a rarity to be winning seven games there. 
Now it's perceived to be a down year. That is the definition of overachievement. And now everyone continues to ask the question, oh, where is he going to go? Where is he going to go? And it may ultimately be that he does leave there. But whether he leaves there or not, you take solace in the fact that as, you, as an Iowa State fan, as an Iowa State graduate, as an Iowa State student, you've either got a world-class head coach that's yours, or if he ever leaves, the overall stature of the program has been raised to the point where you may be able to attract legitimate candidates, the likes of which maybe you couldn't attract uh, just a short generation ago. Now, here's the one I was going to bring up. This is a, an entirely different track. So don't identify this team or the reasons why I'm going to give you for this team with Duke or with Boise. But I'm going to mention Auburn to you. Hold your horses. Just settle down for a second. Here's the reason for Auburn. Think it through with me before you call it crazy. Auburn's got a bunch of resources. Auburn's got a big stadium. Auburn's got nice facilities. They've got all that stuff. I know that. Here's what else they have. Now, I want you to tell me what history suggests they should be. Their arch rival, the University of Alabama, is in the middle of a dynasty the likes of which the sport has never seen. And that really goes even back to what Bryant was able to do there. And so that's happening in Alabama. What was Auburn in the majority of the time that Bryant was at Alabama? Think about just that comparative analysis over time. Then add this into the equation. Georgia, their number two rival, is on the precipice of being a championship team. They've already played for one. They're recruiting at a top three level annually. They are right there. So not only are you bumping up against one of the greatest dynasties in the history of college football with your arch, your number two rival is right there behind them. And your number three rival just won the national championship. Those are the three big boys in order, sequentially, that Auburn would call their one, two, three rivals. Historic dynasty, borderline championship program, current national champion. What does history say Auburn should be? Couldn't care less who the coach is. What does history say Auburn should be? As I've told you recently, an afterthought, a total non-contender. They are a bug on a windshield. That's what history says they should be. And yet 2013, 2017, 2019, they beat Auburn, or they beat Alabama, rather. Malzahn's beaten Saban more than anyone has. They've been a contender. They've gone to the SEC championship game. Uh, they played for a national championship in Malzahn's first year. No, they're not racking up championship rings. And yes, they have a lot of resources. But I'm asking you this. Even with all that, you could pay the head coach $20 million. As long as those set of circumstances are still in place, who's coming in there? and doing a whole lot better than Gus Malzahn's done. Now, I get some blowback on this from Auburn folks, because Auburn folks don't want to hear all that. They just want to look at the program in a vacuum. But you can't do that. If I were to take Auburn and drop them in, for instance, the ACC, they'd instantly be much more of a national championship contender every year, because you'd say to yourself, boy, if they get over Clemson, or maybe if they're good enough and they lose to Clemson, they can still get in. That's not the path. They play a few Clemsons. They play a few Tier 2 or Tier 1 programs per year in their division. So that's the plight at Auburn. So I know they don't compare to Duke. They don't compare to Iowa State. But for a different set of reasons, that's why I feel that way about Auburn. And I'll stay in the state of Alabama to wrap it up here. Quickly, UAB is like a total different story. What Bill Clark has done there is almost like in its own world. Most coaches would agree with this. What Bill Clark has done is he had a UAB as legitimate, and then they dismantled the program. 
not for 24 hours, 48 hours, for three years. They bring the program back. I can't stress this enough. The program did not exist. It was wiped off the face of the map for three years. Not figuratively, literally it didn't exist. Then they brought it back in 2017. One year later, 11 and three, or they brought it back in 2018. One, anyway, it took him one year and their Conference USA champions. Finished second in their first year back, won the conference the next year, and there were 11 and three last year. That's insane. And that's a guy who could go a lot of places too, and he just doesn't. He just likes it there. I've talked to people recently who think he won't leave there. Uh, if he did, though, he would have uh, no shortage of suitors lining up at his front door. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, let's roll on, Colin. Let's talk about something that I just want to revisit for a few minutes here. So JT Daniels is eligible at Georgia. And now that's led to a lot of people wondering, oh, goodness, now we've got Daniels and we got just or not Justin Fields. We got Daniels and we got Jamie Newman. And that reminds me of this time, once upon a time when we had Jake Fromm and we had Justin Fields. And lo and behold, Kirby, <coughs> quote, made a terrible decision, unquote. That's like the universal claim now. Kirby made a terrible decision and he let Justin Fields get away. The rest is history. All right. So I wanted to revisit this. But I don't want to do it with hindsight. I want to take you back to when this was going on. Do you remember this? If you're a Georgia fan, do you remember this? I'm not saying that there, were, there, there was 100% agreement on what was happening at the time, but I know a lot of Georgia folks. I'm from Georgia. I know a lot of my buddies who I grew up with who were Georgia fans. And the same folks who would look you in the eye today and swear Kirby Smart made one of the worst decisions ever to let Justin Fields get away, back then... I remember what they were saying. They were happy to traffic in these rumors of character issues, of some concerns off the field. You know, the kind that everyone pretends they know about, but no one can tell anyone. In reality, it just means you're full of it. But everyone was happy to traffic in those rumors back then. Translation, they were endorsing the head coach's decision. A lot of them, not all of them. A lot of people endorsed Kirby Smart's decision back then. Then you got the benefit of hindsight, and you got the benefit that a head coach making a decision never gets. You got the opportunity to see how it plays out, and it played out the way it's played out, and now we are where we are. But there's the question, yo, what was Kirby Smart thinking? Well, what could he have been thinking? Because do you remember what the circumstances were? Jacob Eason goes down week one, 2017. Jake Fromm is inserted as the starter. He's a true freshman. No one thought he was going to play that year, but he did. And so I remember that next week we went up to Notre Dame. I was, I was on the field for that game. I loved it. It was one of the best experiences of my life. And so they win the game, and it ends up that they put a run together that takes them to overtime in the national championship. Now, it wasn't that Jake Fromm was putting on a Joe Burrow-esque performance all year. That's not what their offense was asking him to do either. What was Kirby Smart thinking? Well, think along with him. What would you be thinking? You just had a true freshman 
who played your style of ball, which is risk-averse style, and he was only a true freshman and he just did that. So a lot of people tend to think, okay, well, he's going to get better. Like, that was his floor. With his ceiling, combined with the defense we're going to have in place here, boy, I mean, we're going to be really good. I don't want to upset this unless I'm totally and completely certain that someone's better. I just don't ever think they were convinced that Fields was better. It's very easy to look at him now and to realize he had immensely higher upside. He had immensely higher physical potential. There's no way for you and I really to know unless you're truly dialed in there and Kirby Smart's texting you the answer. There's no way for you to know if there were anything, if there was something that happened that was out of the public eye. I don't know. There always are. There are a million things going on. But the point is, that's how it happened. And I'm fine. If you were critical at the time, I'm fine with you being critical now because you made a statement then. What I'm not here to do is I'm not here to listen to all these folks who were on board with it then, and then as hindsight proves what it proves, they go back and revisionist history is, oh, he made a terrible decision. Okay, well, you were on board with it, but independent of that, forget about that, because you're not the head coach at Georgia, he is. So he's ultimately responsible for it, and I'm not here to defend Kirby Smart, he can do it himself. But I don't think it's the craziest thing in the world to try and understand what the mentality was. You gotta remember where he came from. Kirby Smart came from a place at Alabama and came from coaching under a guy in Nick Saban where risk aversion was the name of the game at quarterback. Nick Saban for a long time looked at the quarterback position and said, I am not going to play a style that puts a critical mass of the load on his shoulders because that's just a breaking point. That's a potentially one torn ACL away from ruining my season. How about I just put a guy there who doesn't lose games and then I build a superior roster around him and we'll just bludgeon people to death. That's how Kirby Smart saw them win. Now here's what the ironic part is. About the time Kirby comes to Georgia is about the time Nick Saban's rethinking that whole philosophy. And so about that time, he's recruiting a guy named Tua Tonga-Vailoa and they're eventually going to shift what they do offensively, but Kirby Smart had already had it ingrained in his DNA that that's how he was gonna play it. And so he went to Georgia, started building what they have defensively now, started recruiting at a high level, and when he's trying to choose between Fromm and Fields, that's what he's asking himself. He's asking himself, what is the path of risk aversion? How do I take the least amount of risk possible and still put myself in position to win a championship? I think what he misdiagnosed was the landscape is changing in this sport. And if he could have seen the future, for example, and he could have seen that he was gonna be, he was gonna need to be able to trade points like he was gonna need to be able to do to beat LSU last year, of course, if he would have been able to see the future, I think he would have made a different decision, but he couldn't see the future. And so lessons are learned. It's one of my favorite Tracy Lawrence songs. Lessons learned. Kirby Smart is not a 30-year veteran. One of the many aspects that have changed about this sport is whereas you used to start at Toledo and then you got a job at Illinois and then you got a job at Arizona State and then you got a job at Georgia, it used to work that way. And at Toledo, no disrespect, but at Toledo you would cut your teeth there and you would learn how to run an organization and you would learn how to manage people and you would make all your mistakes out of the bright spotlight and by the time you got the big boy job, you had 15 years experience under your belt as a head coach and so there were just lessons that you had already learned. It's not the way it is for Kirby Smart. It's not the way it is for Lincoln Riley. It's not the way it is for several guys who are getting a shot 
at a much younger age than you used to. Well, here's the downside. You can't microwave those lessons. You can't speed it up. You still have to learn those kinds of lessons. What you see here is Kirby Smart learned a lesson that a generation ago he would have learned at Bowling Green, but now he learned it at the University of Georgia. That's one of the consequences. You have many rewards for him being your head coach right now. Those, that's just one of the consequences. And you just deal with it and you move on. Now, the fortunate part is Georgia's going to have several more cracks at this thing. So I was talking Thursday night, and this is kind of what brought this on. I was talking Thursday night about some of my Georgia buddies who were saying, oh, man, like, we got now JT Daniels eligible. We got Jamie Newman, and I'm just worried it's going to be Fields from 2.0. You, I, I can tell you Kirby Smart doesn't think that way, but no one should be thinking that way. Even if you believe the wrong decision was made back then, what, are you going to let one wrong decision keep you from ever putting yourself in position to choose from two talented players? Who in the world would think like that? I'll tell you who would think like that. Someone who wants to go play in the Meineke Car Care Bowl. That's who would think like that. And if Meineke wants to slap their sticker on the front of this laptop, I'll apologize for everything I just said. Let's wrap it up with this. We had a question from Stephen. Really, it was more of a statement. And Stephen said, here we go with the Tennessee hype again. It's overblown. Tennessee cannot recruit well enough. They don't have enough in-state talent. I wanted to address this. I think this is a pretty popular sentiment. People lazily, in my opinion, look at Tennessee and they say, because they don't have enough annual high school talent in their state, it's not Georgia, it's not Florida, it's not Texas, it's not California. Since they don't, they don't have four and five stars on every street corner in the state, well, they'll never be able to compete. Now, my philosophy with Tennessee, I'll spell you out in a second, but let me just dispel this myth that you have to be parked in a loaded state, loaded from the standpoint of high school football talent in order to compete. It's garbage. Ohio State right now is sitting on 18 verbal commitments. Six of them are from Ohio. Alabama has twice as many kids committed from the state of Florida as they do from the state of Alabama. Georgia signed the number one class in the country this past cycle. Eight of 25 were from the state of Georgia. Clemson had the number three team in America last year, guys. You know how many players in that number three class in the nation, were from South Carolina, one. And I think it was Brent Venable's kid. So well, what are we saying here? It, it seems to not be that big a problem for these programs. I don't think it's that big a problem for Tennessee. What Tennessee has to be able to do is they have to be able to have a viable product to sell. If I'm a five-star caliber defensive end, I want to know that if I come to play for you, I got the same opportunities there that I'm going to have at Bama and Ohio State and Oklahoma and Clemson because I got offers from them too. And what I want is I want to know that I'm going to be developed at the absolute highest level. And as long as I take care of my business and keep my nose clean, you're going to put me in the best position possible to succeed. And you're going to develop me to hopefully enjoy a future in the NFL. That's what I want. And if you can pitch me that at Tennessee, I don't care if I'm from Huntsville, Alabama or Chattanooga, Tennessee. I don't care about that imaginary border. I want to win. And the reality here, and there's data to back this up that I'm not going to bore you with tonight, but every year we see state boundaries mattering less and less as it relates to where kids are going to high school. The wrong way to think about it is, oh, Tennessee doesn't have enough in-state talent. They're screwed. The right way to think about it is, Draw a six-hour radius around Tennessee. Pretend like they're in a position where they can offer you everything that other programs can. And then ask yourself, what do I find? If I draw that six-hour radius around Knoxville, what do I find? 
You want to know what I find? I find myself into Ohio. I find myself up into Virginia, the Carolinas, most of Georgia, including the state of Atlanta, which we refer to it as for recruiting purposes, a lot of Alabama. And to be honest with you, I'm Jeremy Pruitt, so I can go into Mobile anytime I want to, even though it's not in that six-hour radius. I can also get most of Tennessee. I've got a ton of talent in that geographical region. I don't care where my state boundaries are. If I go into Little Rock, Arkansas, or Charlotte, North Carolina, and I tell a kid, here's our brand, here's my vision, you really like it, you're attracted to it, I doubt he's saying, but you know, coach, I just I can't cross that state line. The reason they're going to give you is, I can't come there because you just have not convinced me that you offer what Georgia offers. Once you overcome that, this whole in-state crop of talent, it's nice to have it. Make no mistake, it is a luxury to be able to reside in a state like Texas or California. It's not a necessity. Clemson's proving it right now. It's not a necessity. Ohio State's proving it right now. Alabama's proving it right now. It's not a necessity. What's a necessity is to, if you get to play football this year, put a product on the field that capitalizes on the finish that you had to last year and sells more than just a vision. It sells at this point, here are tangible results that let you know we are on the same track as these teams and you're the kind of player, and players like you are the kind of players who can get us over the hump. Jeremy Pruitt, feel free to use it. I charge you nothing, my friend. Because as we all know, Jeremy Pruitt needs help from me in recruiting. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel and do me a favor, many of you have, Find the Late Kick Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a five-star review. Subscribe there, too. We've had a lot of fun, and we are getting through this thing as best we can. And we've had a ton of fun interacting with you guys tonight, I'm sure, in the comments section. Will be and has been no different. So until next time, for Director Colin, for Aaron, for Tani, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great and safe week, and God bless. shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.